Hi folks, thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping, we are live tonight, if you're listening to this on Friday the 18th in Ballymun in the Axis Theatre and I cannot wait. There's a handful of tickets left, the link is in this podcast now, it says Eventbrite, you head there and grab the tickets, they are cheapest chips and all for an excellent cause. Uh, love to see lots of you there, plenty of familiar faces and let's have a bit of crack this evening. Uh, if you're listening, if you like, if you enjoy, if you think that this podcast project, this platform is important, now more than ever, we need your support. Patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It's the only way we keep these mics on, keep the content free and keep the conversations going. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. And I hope to see lots of you this evening for what promises to be another eventful and uh, informative and hopefully fun filled evening. Talk to you soon. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and as you know, folks, my colleague is unwell and today is a particularly bad day, but we are hoping that he is on the mend soon. Um, I do always try to have this sort of in-joke where I poke fun at him, but genuinely, I just hope he's uh, getting the treatment that he needs and that we will hear from him in the next little while. A little bit of housekeeping before we start. Uh, Ballymun. We're going live in Ballymun. I can't wait. Uh, and it's it's next Friday and there's a handful of tickets left. So if you head to eventbrite.ie, throw in Tortoise Shack, you will find us there. Expect to see some of the familiar faces and some of the faces that you don't like, particularly mine. I'll probably uh, be doing a bit of emceeing for the night. And there are some great stuff lined up. So come along, grab the tickets. And all the funds are going back into the Ballymun Community Fund. We're not getting a cent for it, which, you know, it's not exactly ideal. But we this is this is why it's more than act, it's more of activism than podcasting. Anyway, uh, as promised, I am delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in several years, as it happens. And the reason I say several years is because this individual has been banging the drum long before it was popular. Uh, this is someone who has been calling out human rights abuses, employment rights abuses, and what is going on with the, the era in this era of sports washing for a long time in, in its various guises. Uh, it's Fair Square's Nick, Nick McGeehan. Nicholas, it's good to see you. How are you keeping? Oh, good, thanks, Tony. Thanks, thanks for having me on. No, um, I was I was taken aback when I heard your voice uh, on on a US podcast the other day, and I said, "There he is. There's there's Nick, and still banging the drum, saying things that you were saying, you know, in 2017." Yeah, and and even if people, I think if people go into your pinned tweet on Twitter, your medium piece is from 2017, and it's relating to the purchase of Manchester City and what that means from human rights. Uh, aspect can you give me if you don't mind for because let's assume some of our listeners aren't too clued into what's about to happen in terms of the global game and the biggest show on earth can you give me your kind of take on how we can how football can carry on in what is essentially a human rights abusing country yeah i mean it's 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 reached this this culmination um um, now, you know, we've been talking about this issue, I guess, since 2010 when Qatar won the right to host it. And in that time, like you say, there's been, been a lot of people banging a lot of drums and, and sort of warning about uh, the possible ramifications if, you know, basic protection wasn't put in place for, for migrant workers. And unfortunately, you know, this avalanche of criticism that's um, that's coming now on Qatar, we we're chatting about it today with, with some colleagues, um, you know, it's becoming very polarised. Um, because on the one hand, you've just got mountains of criticism. And on the other hand, you've got Qataris feeling as if there's a campaign being waged against them and feeling really under the cosh. 
And ultimately, the responsibility for that has to sit at the door of the Qatari authorities. You know, they had 12 years to get this right, 12 years to put in place reforms that would, um, you know, I mean, they didn't have to even completely overhaul this labour system, but they could have taken the most severe rough edges off it and put themselves on a on a pathway to 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 you know to to an equitable labour system. But unfortunately, that that really just hasn't happened. Um, and as to as to how it's happened, I mean, it's I mean, you you hate to sort of make this point about how we're all implicated, but a lot of people are implicated in this system. You know, a lot of Western companies making a ton of money out of this system. A lot of Western ambassadors are out in Doha and the rest of the Gulf region, you know, actively pursuing construction contracts and other contracts. Um, you know, we've got national associations going out there who are going to be coining in millions from participating in this World Cup. And, you know, the further you go, the more you're going to earn. Um, so, so to some extent, I think you know you have to pin the blame at the door of the Qatari authorities, um, and FIFA, of course, have have just done absolutely nothing constructive since this was announced. Um, but also, you know, it's in a good opportunity to look at this labour system um, and how it's sort of woven into the to the sort of the global economic um, sort of fabric, if you will. It's 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 another it's another form of extractivism. So we, we so we you've literally seen. So we talk about on this podcast, say Ireland's role as a central hub on tax global tax avoidance. Okay, mm-hmm. and and whether you believe that it's illegal, illegal, whatever, I that I let listeners decide for themselves where where they believe this happens. But we know. Speaking to someone, say, for example, as I have done in Vietnam, that says, you know, the equivalent of, you know, X number of nurses is extracted via this mechanism of tax avoidance. But in this situation, this is human capital. And I hate to be so blunt about it, Nick, but this is human capital that is then brought to these regions to to deliver. And what is a two tier system? I mean, because Qatar, the average Qatari is very well off. But but there's a but there's a, a, a sub level. And, you know. I don't know what how how strong we can be about this, but it's certainly a captured workforce. Is that is that um, is that am I being even too too kind when I say that? Yeah, I think you've been slightly too kind. Um, I mean, I, I think the the proper lens through which to look at this is is slavery. Um, I think, and again, let's be careful about the use of that term. It's not to say that all migrant workers in Qatar are slaves. That would be ridiculous, right? But what we are talking about is a labour system that enables the complete control and abuse of those workers. And I would say that the level of control that is is exerted upon them is equivalent to the level of control that you would have in what we tend to unfortunately call traditional or old-fashioned slavery. So I think that is the proper lens through which to look at it. Um, Also, in in relation to how migrant workers are excluded and racially discriminated against, very similar to the models of slavery. But in in, in reference to the extractive point, yeah, I think that's really important. There was a really, um, I don't know if you you or any of your listeners would have seen the Gary Neville show um, when he went to Qatar. And it was all very very soft focus and a lot of it was quite bad, I think. But there was a really interesting part in it when he spoke to the, the, the manager of one of the hotels in Qatar. And he asked him some question about what's your profit margin? Um, because Neville himself owns a couple of hotels in, in Salford, I believe. And the guy said, well, it's, you know, it's like 35%. And, and Neville sort of took a step back and said, well, that's insane. How can you, how can you have such high profit margins? Um, and the guy said, well, that's what all the profit margins here are. And Neville made the point, well, why don't you pay your workers a bit more? Mm. You know, and it was actually in the midst of this soft focus piece on Qatar, you had this really precise 
and simple explanation of what's happening, which is that the money and the labour of the poorest people in the world is being transferred to the richest people in the world. And it's not just in terms of wages. If you look at recruitment fees, for example, if you're a Bangladeshi worker, you tend to be paying about $3,000 or $4,000 to get your job in the Gulf. Right? Now, where does that money end up? Well, some of it ends up in Bangladesh, but most of it ends up in the Gulf. What about things like private health insurance? Right? Mm. Who pays for that? What's supposed to be the employer, but if the employer doesn't pay it, who pays for it? The worker pays for it, right? What about things like compensation and um, when people die, right? If a Na- Nepalese worker dies, right, he's compensated by a fund that comes out of Nepal. Now, who pays, who pays into that fund? Nepalese workers going to Qatar. So again, at every turn, what you see is money being taken from these poor people and transferred to these incredibly wealthy people, and it's all enabled by a system of control and predominantly this kafala system that we, that we hear so much about. So so I think you're absolutely right to to frame it in those terms and it's unfortunate that we tend not to but that is ultimately uh, what's happening. Yeah and 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 again behind all these these statistics you know there's arguments whether it's six and a half thousand migrant workers who've died or it's you know what the the dispute from the authorities is oh it's two and a half thousand <laughs> like oh my god like uh how many is how many is too many anyway you know exactly. it's, it just seems it just seems grotesque to actually have that debate but nonetheless here we are nick and we're a week away yeah, I mean, I, I sort of I understand where that debate comes from because I think when when you have a tragedy, right, and what has happened is a tragedy. People, you want a, a simple metric that people can rally around and go, "That's what we're concerned about." And a number does that, right? Mm. If you say something like, "There's been, you know, a sixty percent rate of unexplained deaths in Qatar," that doesn't really grab people, right? Unfortunately, when the Guardian put out that six thousand five hundred figure, even though it wasn't about the, fact that the numbers on stadiums, right? Even though it was just about the entire number who had died, um, and I think it was grossly misinterpreted by some people, and in some cases, willfully misinterpreted by some people. Um, but it did, it did provide a rallying number. Um, that people could get around. And they were right to get around this issue because the issue here is gross negligence that has affected probably thousands of people and killed thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that the number was wrong and misinterpreted is, is in my view, deeply unfortunate. And the fact that we tend to have these debates about worker deaths focused around trying to ascertain the death toll when the reality is we're never going to be able to do that because the data is not good enough and because they don't do investigations. Um, that's all unfortunate, but it is okay that people are concerned about worker deaths in Qatar because, you know, because the lack of protection there is just, you know, I mean, it's it's just unforgivable. And the fact they don't do investigations at all. Yeah. Anybody below a certain standard of um, standing in, in society is actually a lesser, you, you know, and that is, and they're not, it's not deemed applicable. And yet, you know, like, let's, let's, like Qatar is, it's a tiny statelet. You know, it's 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 hardly like we're talking about. Like again, we can go back to what's happening with Saudi Arabia and Newcastle and and you know PSG and Man City and all of these things. But this is this is this is the greatest show on earth now. And you're right to point out that that you know it, there's companies that are going to benefit. But we got here. That word corruption, it's un, it's undoubtedly you can say it freely. There's been so much corruption that brought us here, and that was a. a you know, how quickly we forget we've gone from Russia to Qatar and, you know, we've seen how successful the sports washing was for Russia. And now we see this carrying on to, to Qatar. I mean, 
listeners will probably be aware of the the story about um, the pressure from former uh, French Prime Minister uh, Nicolas Sarkozy uh, and, and what he wanted in terms of uh, selling uh, selling warplanes effectively into the into the Gulf statelet to try and 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 so how how benefits were or how votes were essentially bought for bought and paid for and we know of people who who have gotten in trouble for the brown envelope uh, culture and i put it to you which is really obscene is that we've known about a history a culture from an irish perspective you know uh john delaney our own uh befallen former <laughs> head of the fai once bravely put it up the set bladder right and now we're in a situation whereby FIFA has has ceded the, the, the high moral ground to Sepp Blatter, who's now speaking out. It's it's a bit strange, Nick, when you see this in the grand context. That is corruption, giving out about corruption. Yeah, I mean, it, those, those comments were interesting. Um, you know, apparently, I mean, from, from, from what I've been able to gather from people far more knowledgeable than I, Blatter was always against, always against Qatar. You know, Platini was the one who was sort of more active in pushing it. Uh, and he's always apparently had a bit of a bee in his bonnet about it. Um, but yeah, when you when, when you see someone like that being able to take a take a moral high ground, it, it speaks not only to um, you know, how dreadful the situation is, um, well, it speaks more to the situation about FIFA, really. I mean, I, I wonder to what extent and the conversation really has to change about FIFA away from sort of reform to do we actually need to just have a radical rethink about how, how football is governed? And do we actually need to look for champions and provide alternatives as to how that happens? Because this situation will be repeated um, potentially with Saudi Arabia and a 2030 bid. Um, there's currently, I mean, not much to stand between them winning that, I don't think. I mean, maybe a Ukraine bid, but that that, that sort of, you know, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that is subject to all sorts of questions and queries. Um, so this could all be repeated, you know. Um, uh, and unless some sort of stance is taken beyond just everyone throwing their hands in the air, um, I, I worry that it will, you know. And I mean, like we got to... I... It's not obviously. It's not just football. We have to think back to, you know, um, the Uyghur situation in China and how a couple of NBA players took a stand and very quickly uh, untook that stand. You know, we mm. we know. I think it's only was it only yesterday, um, WNBA star and uh, who. So if listeners aren't aware, there's a lot more money in sort of women's basketball almost in in Euro ball than there is in some of the NBA, and they play both seasons in in different countries. Brittany Griner was doing that. She's now. I believe she's been moved to a bloody um, working camp for effectively having what was um, was it marijuana residue in a in a in a vape is is kind of the 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 the, the thing. This sort of stuff plays out in the global geopolitics of it, whereby Joe Biden is asked, "What are you doing about this?" and they just have to kind of shrug and say, "Well, you know, this is the this is what's happening." And sports. And people keep saying that this nonsense of sports isn't political. Tell that to uh, tell that to the people who um, who can't participate. Tell that to the people who who are trying to tra- change things for the good. And and so many great people through history. I want to ask you though, move off the workers' rights because obviously that is that is obviously one huge issue. The other one has been the um, the almost be less gay, <laughs> be less the be less gay campaign. The L- uh, Qatar has has. You know, archaic laws when it comes to LGBT rights. We know we know these situations. And now we've seen to the point where 
you know, advice has been given from people in the UK, government government members in the UK, if you're traveling, you know, maybe, 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 maybe don't be gay for that two weeks, kind of. Uh, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but 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 Nicholas, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I think those were 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 very poor, misjudged comments. Um, you know, the the problem the problem I think and what people have to focus on, and it's always instructive to look at what the Cattery PR machine was focusing on. The Cattery PR machine focused on fans, right? And the thing was, don't worry, you'll be safe when you come here. Um, and and that's not the issue. Yeah, of course that is important, right? That is very important. But the issue is what about Cattery LGBT people? You know, what what about them? How are, how are they feeling about this tournament? How are their voices being going to be brought through? And they, they haven't been brought through enough. And the reason they haven't been brought through enough is so few of them uh, are able to speak out freely about what they suffer and what they experience and the impact on them. Um, I'm not sure the World Cup is a particularly nuanced enough spotlight to, to mm. bring that issue through with again with the sort of nuance that it requires but i think it is it is vital that it's highlighted what what those people experience there was a very brave hang on hang on, hang on hang on nick are you saying to me that an actual armband isn't going to change the world <laughs> no i mean i mean i i think everyone was i recall when we were talking about you know the sort of the idea of what could be done with the time left in qatar and and along with a few other colleagues in, in the sort of NGO community saying, well, I, I just hope to God it isn't just armbands. Um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with an armband in in and of itself, but when that is the sum total, you know, and that's the sum total of what you're saying about critical issues, uh, it's really, it's really not enough, you know. Yeah, it just I know I find that like again. So we have a, a referee in GAA, David Goff, who is a member of the LGBT community. He He's had issues where players have gone out in support and, and wore rainbow laces and all of this. And that's all very good. Yet we know, obviously, so Nigel Owens is very famous in rugby as, as, as ta- telling his story and where his position is. But we also know within world football, and that's why football is probably the wrong forums because there's so few people who are actually uh, comfortable enough to come out and 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 be who they are until after they leave the sport. So there is, you know, there's an issue there just within within the sport itself. I mean, I've had John, John Amici on this podcast, and John John played uh, in the NBA in Utah, a very conservative state, and. You know, I think the one thing when he did eventually come out, thank God he's six foot eleven. I think is one of the things he said that he is a giant of a man. Um, but but uh, you know, I don't know if we're ready. Well, I think the the society is ready. I just don't know how the support sports governing bodies are. Um, I don't know if you saw recently there has been two Leinster rugby players, one particularly talking about coming out to to the squad and the team, and how it was such a. Um, the issue, and I hate to say it, was he he says this himself, is how it had weighed on him more. And then when it was out, it was like, oh, you know, everybody was like, yeah, OK, let's just just get out the training, you know. Mm. And but we we we're, we we just don't seem to be ready to have that conversation, particularly when it comes to football or uh, am I just. Uh... No, I, I think that's true. I mean, there is a, there is a little bit of hypocrisy going on here right now in terms of, you know, football proclaiming itself to be very LGBT friendly right the reality is it's not 
Because if it was, you'd have a lot more players coming out and saying so, right? The reality is that any LGBT player who came out would get, would would have a difficult time in a lot of top leagues. So I, I am a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, with the, the idea that football is suddenly this tremendous LGBT-friendly sport, yeah. right? And then using that to, to sort of bash Qatar for what is a really complex social issue which is going to require a lot of um a lot of sensitive and difficult conversations um in order for for the people within that you know for the lgbt community in qatar to to be allowed to you know to express themselves and, and to be to be free with their with their sexual orientation that's a difficult thing to do not to excuse for any sentence for any for any second the sort of repressive voices within that country who 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 enable their abuse but um no you're right i actually want to go back to there's a, there's a brilliant lecturer in religious studies he's head of the department in ucc amanola de sandy and he talks about queer muslim histories and how you know you, like you, you only have to look at the icon the, the artworks and stuff and understand that that this was there was parts of this and he will be he will always point out that there's an element of our society, I want to say the Western society that will say, well, actually, we don't actually care about gay rights. We just l- like to use it as a stick to beat um, the other. And he's right, right. you know, yeah. and, and 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 you've pointed it out. And honestly, Amanullah, I didn't do it justice. So if you're listening, pal, don't get mad at me. I'm trying to I'm trying to re- um, give a sense of, of, of some of the learnings that I've gotten from talking to him. Um, if if we can just go back, though, to the the actual next few the next few weeks so the world is going to watch and you were part of what's you know basically this is very callous of me to say but we know we are where we are nick you know it's going to happen it's going to kick off and the only thing we can kind of do now is this campaign of make fifa pay we can try and look for for resources for these workers better improvements to these rights money you know, like reimbursement for for the people who've lost people or or, or suffered injuries. What's that? What what's your um, kind of bigger picture for that? And how and how do people get involved? Yeah, I guess that that campaign came from it came from discussions that that we all had about you know you, as activists, right? You, you're in this unique position where you have the World Cup and the spotlight of World Cup, right? So so you have to. You have to use that effectively in the way that you think will produce the, the greatest amount of benefit to the greatest amount of people, right? Now, it came to a stage where we knew that labour reforms, you know, there was just no, they weren't, weren't going to go any further, right? Campaigning on implementation of kafala reform is not particularly helpful, right? And it's not going to be something you could get people to rally around. But we did have a situation where we knew that there are hundreds, of, hundreds, perhaps thousands of unexplained deaths. We do know that, you know, Thousands and thousands of workers have lost livelihoods and been seriously injured. We do know that you know thousands have lost wages and or essentially had wages stolen from them. Um, and so you get to the stage where we know all these harms have happened. There's a there's a big body of evidence to establish that. So rather than argue about the reform process, let's argue. Let's focus on trying to get these people some money back in compensation for what they lost. Mm. Uh, and that's the basis for that campaign. Amnesty did a tremendous report on it, sort of outlining the, the theor- theoretical basis for it. I mean, it's, it makes obvious sense to anyone with any sort of moral compass, right? But mm. Amnesty did a tremendous job of, of detailing what the 
what the legality of it would be um, last year, and and that's something that we've we've all been campaigning on. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like the Catharys are, are are willing to play ball, uh, even though the call is on FIFA to compensate the workers. Um, I don't think FIFA is going to budge unless the Catharys say it's okay. Um, and the Catharys are in the process of um, really pushing back against all this criticism, saying there's a campaign against them, saying that it's racist, saying that it's well, Orientalist. Well, well, there is a there is a campaign against them. They're absolutely right. Um, but but it's not the, it's not the same. Like I just I wanted there was one really interesting story, and we, we touched on it briefly before we came on air about people who've been hired to help manage this campaign. And how they were quickly sort of before they got back to the office, having sent a few messages, they were no longer part of the team. Can you just outline that? Because it's that's much more relevant, I think, now than me bringing up Sepp Blatter again. You know, how it's been managed within the Qatari hierarchy and structure. Yeah, that's a really that's a really important case. I'm I'm glad you glad you raised it. The guy in question is called Abdullah Ibais. He's a Jordanian. Jordanian Palestinian, um, who a very talented guy who went to work in Qatar as a PR executive um, in late two thousands, quickly got a job with the Supreme Committee, which is the World Cup um, delivery body, um, and rose to the rank of Arab Arab language media manager. Um, and you know, I spoke to Abdullah before he was before he was arrested, essentially, and, and put in prison, and and he told this remarkable story of having within the organisation stood up on an issue of migrant worker abuses linked to the stadiums. And his advice to the organisation was, look, we need to be public about this and we need to put our hands up and say, we've, you know, we've, we've done this and, and we apologise for it, but we're re- rectifying it, right? Um, they did not accept this advice. They, they didn't want to acknowledge any involvement in any wrongdoing. Um, and a few months later, um, Abdullah was essentially arrested. Uh, he was accused of bribery, um, and he was, uh, you know, he was threatened with torture. He was threatened with state security charges as well. You know, they said that they would accuse him of espionage, essentially, if he, if he didn't, com- uh, you know, confess to the lower charge of bribery. That was the basis of his his, his conviction, essentially. And yeah, to cut a, to cut what is a very long story short, he is now in jail in Doha. Um, you know, and, I'll, I'll, like I'm, I'm right in saying there was there was periods of this where no, his family couldn't contact him. They weren't aware of what had really happened. Um, it was all kind of, you know, as I said, the the the, the, the I'm going to say I'll say this: the manufactured charge of bribery was the was the lesser way of getting him out of the out of the situation whereby. And he he needs to stop standing up for what he knew to be the the right thing to do. Yeah, well, it, it, you're right. It was a manufactured bribe uh, charge. I mean, there's, there's absolutely no evidence to to support it. Um, and and yeah, they they wanted them out of the way. It's hard to entirely grasp at what the motivations were, right? I mean, you're you know, we've seen a lot of documentation. We've seen police reports. We've had conversations with with Abdullah himself. Um, we shared lots of really interesting information about how that that organisation operates. Um, but in terms of the motivation, again, it's difficult to say. Um, can we say he, there was an unfair trial? Can we say that somebody within Qatar, in some position of seniority, whether it was within the World Cup Delivery Committee, whether it was a member of the ruling family outside of that that wanted him gone, it's not clear. But somebody wanted him gone, and they certainly didn't want him out in the media talking about, um, you know, talking about his experiences and talking about um, you know, what he'd seen within the Supreme Committee. And that was the situation that we had, uh, I guess, last November when eventually they came and you know, knocked on his door and, and took yeah. him away. And since then, since then he's in jail, you know, and uh, we haven't we haven't heard 
much oh, from it. It's unbelievable when you really think about this. Uh, as I said, um, and this brings me to the final question then, I suppose. So will you watch it? I don't think I will. It's not, I, I confess, I wish I was, ta- I'm, not ta- I'm not taking this on a sort of position of principle, really. Uh, I, I I like the World Cup. I like watching football. Um, I just don't feel any enthusiasm for it at all. And I guess I increasingly as it approaches, I feel slightly, um, the idea of watching it feels slightly wrong to me. Um, I understand that people will. Uh, I'm certainly not going out there telling people they can't watch the World Cup or advising that they don't. Um, but on a personal level, I, yeah, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't summon up much enthusiasm for it right now. Nicholas McGain, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for years of work going in this, and not just this, on several aspects, whether it be migrant rights and migrant workers' rights, particularly, and not, and again, not just in Qatar and different different areas. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, people, look, the links are in the bio. You'll find Nick's details there. So if you want to click through and have a look and see about 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 the work they're involved in, um, you know, support the work. But it's everybody has to make that decision whether they want to sit down and watch this. But remember, let's be honest about it. We we can't say we didn't know. We do know, and we've known for a long time. We just uh, sometimes we're going to just hold our hold our nose and suspend disbelief as if we're going to see a Marvel movie. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we don't need the popcorn this time, folks. We'll talk to you all very soon. Take care. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.